Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, I tell you about the rebel biologist Simona Kosak, who moved into the cabin in a national forest and lived there for 30 years, studying and caring for the wildlife, with a wild boar and a terrorist crow at her side. Courtney is going to tell us about parthenogenesis, a form of asexual reproduction that can be found throughout the insect and reptile kingdom. Welcome back to the human exception. Maybe. Maybe. Possibly. Is that a question? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it sounded very questiony, so. I was like, can we start? How does this thing work again? Um, who wants to go first? It's easy. You or me? I don't know. Are we going to roll for it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, you went first last time. I can go first. Okay. They called her a witch because she chatted with animals and owned a terrorist crow, known for stealing gold and attacking bicyclists. A lynx slept in her bed, and she shared her roof with a tamed boar. That's amazing! I know, you're gonna love her, I'm telling you. Simona Kosak was a scientist, ecologist, and author of award-winning films, as well as an activist who fought to protect Europe's oldest forest. She was the great-granddaughter of Julius Kosak, the granddaughter of Wojciech Kosak, and daughter of Jerzy Kosak three painters who loved both Polish landscapes and history. She was also a niece of Mira palakowski Janisneska and the poet Magdalena Samozwenek, the writer. Simona was meant to be a son and the fourth Cossack, carrying easels and carrying on her famous surname. By the way, there's like a million Polish names and words that I'm going to horribly mispronounce, so I apologize to our Polish listeners. Instead, she spent more than 30 years in a wooden hut in the Yawitsa forest without electricity or access to running water, Simona believed that life ought to be simple and close to nature. Living amongst animals, she found something that she never could have found among her fellow humans. Simona Kosak completed her degree in zoology in the Jagiellonian University in Krakow in 1970 with a specialization of psychology and animal ethology and animal behavior. Her dream was to settle down in the Bierstein Mountains in the Halski Valley, which was wild at the time. She was promised a position of a curator at a yet non-existent museum in a non-existent national park. As the matter was being constantly delayed, Simona and Myra of Bierstein Mountains, where she'd spent most of her holidays for the last 10 years, abruptly changed directions, packed her suitcase, and after several hours of a train, got off in Yawitsa. It was the middle of winter, the 1st of February 1971, when she started a job at the Mammal Research Institute of the Polish Academy of Sciences. She moved into a guest room, and yet quietly still dreamed of Bierstein. But one day, an acquaintance and later good friend, Barbara Eva Wismek, who was a Polish language scholar and wife of a national park and palace park forest ranger, said, Simona, dear, Zizhenta will appeal to you. Perhaps the place is a bit haunted, but you're quite brave. You must go see this wonderful spot. Simona first saw Zizhenets in moonlight, Eva Wismek remembers. We decided that we'd go there at nighttime. The four of us went down the road with torches, my husband, the hired carter, myself, and Simona. As they approached the location of the hut, a large creature crossed their path. Simona, 
It was the first aurochs that I'd ever seen in my life. I'm not counting the ones in the zoo. Well, and this greeting right there in the entry of this forest, this monumental aurochs, the whiteness, the snow, the full moon, the whitest white everywhere, pretty. And the little hut hidden in the little clearing all covered with snow, an abandoned house that no one had lived in for two years. In the middle room, there were no floors. It was generally in ruins. And I looked at this house, all silvered by the moon as it was, romantic, and I said, It's finished. It's here or nowhere else. And I have some pictures. Ooh. So, in the middle of this forest, there's this hut called Yuzinyats. The next day, she showed up at the office of the director of Yavitsa National Park, as the forest lodge was located within its boundaries, and proceeded requested it be signed to her as staff housing. The director at the time, engineer Josef Budson, interrogatively eyed the slender girl who had this whim to commute six kilometers to work winter or summer of her own free will. He agreed, but noted that prominent photographer from Vorsav, Lech Wilczek, was also making efforts to occupy Zizinets. On the 24th of March, 1971, on her own name day, Simona moved in, and about a fortnight later, her neighbor moved into the second part of the house. Before Simona went to live in Zizinets, the house had to be renovated. The employees of Yavitsa National Park repaired the roof, changed the joists, got rid of the fungus, and said that it ought to suffice for at least five years, and it did. After the renovations, Simona started to arrange her part of Zizinets. She plastered the walls with wallpaper, washed the windows, placed the sofa and bench, and upholstered the armchairs that had been brought over from Cacao. She brought clocks, decorations, oil lamps, and furniture from Kasakavka, and she didn't care when Jack Vizmek said to her, You won't make Kasakavka out of Zizhenyets. A large tile stove in the old style stood in the corner of Simona's room, and a large table was placed in the middle. It was her workshop study, where she worked by oil lamp. Her mother, Elizabeth Kosak, would bring books and furniture from Kaskavka when she came to visit. The road to the cabin wasn't in the greatest shape. For a long time, horse and or horse and carriage were the most common access. But eventually automobiles could make the trek. But for Simona, well, she was known to use a Fiat Maluk, a little all-terrain car and cross-country skis to move about the forest, but most famously was her Komar motorbike. The roads of the forest were filled with mud and were regularly destroyed by vehicles carrying wood out of the forest. Her little Komar was the most reliable form of transportation. And I've got a picture here of her, her little motorbike. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Is it into- so good? I want to be her. <laughs> Simona's neighbor was Lech Filchek, an author and photographer whose primary passion was nature and its preservation. With similar interests and goals, you would think that they would have immediately got on. But that was not the case. Both thinking that the other was full of themselves. But living in the same building, they had to tolerate each other's presence. Oh, good. This is fine. Tomas Verkowski, a hunter from Yawitsa, recalls, Once I saw a phenomenon advancing on a comar, wind in the hair, a pilot cap, rabbit pants, and eye goggles, it passed me by, and I had to turn around because I didn't know what it was. This was 1974, and this was the first time that I saw Simona. It sounds like he's mad that she's wearing pants. (laughs) That's what I got out of that. He sounds threatened and angry about pants. (laughs) <laughs> no matter what the season the comar was her ride in the winter she rode her comar to work with her hands freezing to the handles professor kajisha Porzaski, a colleague of simona from her university years in Krakow, says once with a friend i was going across yoyitsa forest in a small truck suddenly we see someone pushing through the snowdrifts carrying a motorbike on her back it was simona we packed her together with this motorbike into our truck she thanked us later by heating up a big pot of bigos at the Jizinets. 
Just what a fucking badass. <laughs> oh, my motorbike can't get through this three feet of snow. I guess I'll just carry it on my back. Just gonna God. huff it. I want to see her. <laughs> Simona's mother, Elzbita, would come and spend the summers with her daughter. For the winter, she would return back to the hut in Kazakavka, and she had problems with her hips and often required the crutches to walk. So getting around Yezhenets was a bit tricky, especially with the outdoor privy. But for this woman who grew up homesteading, this was true paradise. This was home. Life on Yezhenets did resemble an atmosphere of a manor in the summer. There was reading by the light of oil lamps, keeping the hens and the, with time also spinning wool. On top of all that, the chimes from the clock of Lechfilchek's collection resounded every hour. Simona's love of animals of all kind naturally led the property to quickly becoming a zoo between animals that she rescued, domestic animals she acquired, and the wild critters that she had befriended. Early on, she had an owl and three buzzards. So when Lek came across four abandoned owl chicks, he brought them over in a basket. This would begin their joint animal menagerie. It only made sense. They both loved the isolation of the ancient forest and the connection it gave them with nature. With Simone's work for the Mammal Research Institute and Lek's wildlife photography and writing, it was the perfect place, and both adored their animal companions. The animals they rescued weren't captive. The owls would eventually go their own way, and the buzzards, when she released them, they came back and would escort Simona to and from the little hut for some time before they eventually went on their own way too. It was a baby boar that would be named Zabka, meaning froggy, that would bring them together. Zabka had been found one day old and was brought to Lek to care for. He brought the piglet home to Simona's delight, and together they would raise the boar. They'd alternate nights, as due to the cold, the piglet had to sleep with them in their beds, and even if one of them had to go away for a reason, someone was always there for the little boar. Zavka hated being alone, and behaved more like a dog than a boar, following her owners around, and she would often steal things from her parents just to make them chase after her. She was also very affectionate and frequently demanded cuddles and chin scratches. Through this co-parenting, Lek and Simona got to know each other, and eventually to even liking each other. They would be together for the rest of their lives. So, here's Zavka. So cute! Oh my god! Oh. oh, hang on. Asher's playing with the thing. Asher, fuck off. Okay, I need to <laughs> deal with this one second. And got more board pictures. Because Zach is amazing. So this is Simona on the floor, her mom in the chair knitting, and Cus <laughs> sleeping in her bed. <laughs> Oh, like I guess the best thing, you know, your neighbor being a wildlife photographer is you get some amazing pics. I love it. In an article, the two were quoted oh. as saying this: "At dinner, Simona said jokingly, Lek loves her animals, but I think he likes me too, because I'm the only woman within range of five kilometers." Lek, laughing, says, "But I have a motorcycle, love, and besides, I have plenty of other women only four kilometers away." <laughs> So there's this photo of um, that he took of them, basically. Aww. Um, which is great, because they're make, both making terrible faces. So I like to consider that the before photo. <laughs> and this is Aww. the photo. Aww. Yeah. And their hairy love child, Zabka, grew into a massive boar. While I don't have the exact dimensions of Zabka, it's common for adult boars of her species to weigh between 130 to 220 pounds, with reports of boars that have reached over 400 pounds. Whoa! Yeah. That's a lot. Zabka would be with them for 17 years. 
Despite her size, she was gentle as can be with her parents, though she could be shy around guests and will aggressively defend the property from strangers. <laughs> She's a guard bore instead of a dog. Aww. Better than a dog. <laughs> In April 1973, Janice Kaseki, head of the breeding at Poznan Zoo, came to Jijin Yetz and declared, I'm sure you need a donkey. <laughs> and thus they acquired Hapunya. Hapunya was mischievous and loved to travel. She was known for wandering off to the woods, sometimes on grand adventures, even attempting to cross into the Soviet Union twice, but the border guards turned her away and called her parents. <laughs> Mazaka was far from the only wild animal that Simona befriended. Terror flew on black wings, and his name was Korosek. The corvid was known to terrorize half of Yavuvetsa. He stole cigarette cases, hairbrushes, scissors, cutters, mousetraps, and notepads. He attacked people, he tore up bicycle seats, he stole documents, he stole lumberjack sausages in the woods, made holes in grocery bags, he clung to the pant legs of men, pulled at women's skirts, and pricked their legs. People thought that he was some kind of punishment for their sins, and he was Lek's favorite companion. Stanislav Mislinski, who has scars from this bird to the day, recalls, he would even steal workers' pay in the woods. He once stole my permit for entering the woods. He pulled it out of my pocket and notoriously tore it apart. He loved to attack people who rode bicycles, especially girls. It was very impressive. He would attack the rider's head with his beak. The person would fall off, and he would then sit on the seat triumphantly looking at the wheel spinning. Amazing. Simona's friend said, Once he stole my car keys, and Lex said, Oh, don't worry, he'll bring them back. And he took out a metal rod and scared the crow. He says, You son of a bitch, you took the keys of my friend? He and I said to Korosek that if he brought them back, he'd get an egg. And if he doesn't, well, he'd get a blow with the rod. And the crow perhaps understood this, because after a moment, he flew up to me, furious with the keys in his beak, and threw them on the table. <laughs> Bozena Vegeta recalls, Once I was walking around the reserve without a permit, the guard saw me. He followed me to Dijinets and started to fill in line penalty. When he was handing the print to me, the crow appeared. He took the paper in his beak, flew up to the roof of Dijinets, and with it, tore it apart with his legs on top of the roof. I had such a laughing attack that I couldn't control myself. The guard didn't know what to do, and finally he just shrugged his shoulders at the whole thing. <laughs> and another story, before I could even make it to the porch, Korosak the crow first pecks at my leg around my ankle and proceeds to steal a pen from my pocket. Fortunately, he is open to bribes and returns it in exchange for an egg. And finally, all the lumberjacks in Sama in the area need to constantly keep an eye on the power saws. Otherwise, Korosek nicks the screws and spark plug boots and steals their lunches. In spite of all that, people like him. <laughs> and it wasn't just the people that had to worry about Korosek's mischief. He also liked to harass the animals, with the exception of Zabka, who he was afraid of. He'd often ride around on Hapunya's back and heckle the chickens. But while devious and almost malicious with outsiders, Korosek loved his parents. When Simona would ride her motorcycle, he would sit on her head on, or the back seat, making sure she got to her destination safely. So I got not sure the mo on the motorcycle, but I got him riding on like the splash guard on Lex's bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> For the locals of Yayugetsa, it was a common sight to see Lex walking around down Main Street and Korsak flying overhead, frequently flying down low, landing on Lex's shoulder and cuddling up against his face. And of course, though, Korsak isn't the only one to follow Lack, with Zabka and Hapunya regularly at his side. And here he is reading a magazine with his dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. Simona had hand-raised a pack of deer that would go on to live in the woods. Simona recalls, One day the pack of my deer manifested sights of fright, and did not want to go out into the forest field to graze. And I started to approach the young forest because this was the direction in which the deer started, their ears raised and their hair standing up on their buttocks. 
Apparently something very threatening had to be out there in the young forest. I crossed about half of this open space and stopped because I heard a choir of terrified barking behind me. So I turned around and what did I see? Five of my deer stood up on their stiffly straightened legs looking at me and calling with this bark. Don't go there. Don't go there. There's death over there. I must admit I was dumbstruck. And finally I did go and what did I find? turned out that there were fresh traces of a lynx that had crossed the young forest. I went in deeper and found lynx feces and it was indeed warm because I touched it. And what did that mean? It meant the carnivore had entered the farm and the deer had noticed them, then ran and they were scared. And what did they see then? They saw their mother going unto her death, completely unaware. She had to be warned and for me I honestly admit that this day was a breakthrough. I crossed the border that divides the human world from that of the animals. If there was a glass that divided us from humans, a wall impossible knocked down, then the animals would not care about me. We are deer. She is human. What do we care for her? If they did warn me, it meant one thing, and one thing only. They saw me as a member of their pack. We don't want you to get hurt. I honestly admit, I relive this event for many days, and in fact today, when I think about it, there's still this sense of warmth around my heart. It proves how one can befriend the world of wild animals. Baby deer. The Disney princess. Yeah. She's the Disney princess we all wanted to be growing up. Only badasser. Oh, see the baby. And then Aww. just like grow up and just follow her around the forest. Oh. With time, more animals appeared in Simona's den by the house. A doe who approached the window and ate sugar. A black stork for whom Simona created a nest and a chest in her room. A dachshund and a female lynx that slept in the same bed with Simona, as well as peacocks. Zhizhenyets quickly became an experimental laboratory, which Simona consequently then expanded as a zoo psychologist with a hospital and a waiting room for sick animals. Here she healed, hugged, and observed the animal lot together with Vilcek, who photographed them. Here, as a mother, she raised moose twins, Pepsi and Cola, washed the neck of the black stork, took the female rat Canalia up into her sleeve as the animal panicked in open spaces. She let the befriended doe give birth on the patio, took in lambs and their mother, kept and observed rats Alpha and Omega, and kept crickets in a glass container. It was here that she checked on the weather and by observing the bats in the basement. The menagerie grew with each year. You don't need the weather channel, you just can check the bats in the basement. <laughs> Probably more accurate. Just some pictures from around the property. Just like hanging out with your donkey, dog, and deer. <laughs> Eagle. Oh, and they had an owl. Yeah, she had um, there, there was one owl, and she also had raised four ducks at one point too. Wow. In winter of nineteen ninety-three, Simona commenced her battle for saving the lynxes and wolves of Yevgenyetsa. In an article from Eurostyle magazine, Alina Nitska wrote for the example that a group of young workers from the mammal research plant of the the Pan Polish Academy of Science came up with the idea of telemetric studies. A wild animal is given a collar with a radio transmitter so that it could pass out information as it walks about the woods. But the carnivore must be caught first. It was revealed that the researchers set up traps for the wolves and lynxes, which are prohibited by Polish law. Simona came across two metal jaw traps, so she took them with her and refused to give them back. She was accused by the scientists of stealing the research apparatus. The matter was investigated by the regional prosecution of Hajnevka and the second crime section of the regional court in Biasko Polatsky. During the hearing conducted by the prosecution, in response to the question of what kind of threat such research apparatuses had to Yayoetsa, Simona answered, In my opinion, it was a lethal threat, not only to the animals, but also to the guards. Each animal that falls into this trap is potentially condemned to die if the wound of the paw is heavy. 
with a population that numbers in 12 specimens and including poaching and chance deaths of wild animals, is a lethal threat to the continuity of the lowland lynx type, whose genetic scope is unique across all of Europe. Because there are no more lowland lynxes in Europe, it is a disgrace to the world of science for us to contribute to this. And here's a picture of a lynx. Mm-hmm. I always want to pet them. So fluffy. And they are not kitty cats, though. <laughs> I mean, they're cats, but like, they're not tame. <laughs> no. <laughs> the urge. <laughs> My file is too powerful. Well, fuck you. What? Oh, my file is too powerful. One of the pictures I tried to show. Oh. Just, you said something about a wolf, and I was like, what about wolves? Oh, there is a wolf there. She's yeah, that's why I was confused. Wolf. I was like, what? Oh. Yeah. Aww. Super cool. I'm so happy about this, but also I know this isn't going to have the ending I want where they live forever, so I'm getting sad already. <laughs> Every Christmas Eve, Simona and Lek would decorate a spruce tree that grew outside the clearing in front of their house. They adorned the branches with everything that birds and wild animals were fond of. Rowan berries, lard, apples, and dried fruit. They also set out a pile of hay for the deer that passed the Dijonets as they ventured deeper into the primeval forest. At the table, a now giant Zabka receives, while standing on her hind paws like a dog, a loaf of bread, acorns, apples, and all de- in a basket decorated with pine branches. Punya receives a couple pounds more of apples and lots of carrots and oats, as much as she can eat. There are two mice for the owl, and Korosek the crow receives eggs with mayonnaise and a tap on his head so it doesn't get too big. Simona would spend the rest of her life here, and her commitments to conservation and the understanding of wildlife received numerous recognitions over the years. In 1980, the Scientific Council of the Forest Research Institute awarded Simona with a doctoral degree in forest sciences on the basis of her doctoral dissertation, Research on the Trophic Situation of Roe Deer in the Habitat of Fresh Mixed Coniferous Forests in Yamuetsa. In 1991, she received a postdoctoral degree in forest sciences on the basis of her postdoctoral dissertation, Environmental and Intraspecific Determinants of the Feeding Behavior of Roe Deer in the Forest Environment. In 1997, she received the academic title of Professor of the Forest Sciences. In October 2000, Kusik was awarded with the Golden Cross of Merit. Cross of Merit was the highest civilian award in Poland. It was awarded to citizens who went beyond the call of duty in their work for the country and the society as a whole. 2003, Kosak worked at the Mammal Research Institute of the Polish Academy of Sciences in Jajowice at the Forest Research Institute at the Department of Natural Forests, where she was the director from January 2003 until her death in 2007. She was also one of the originators of the UOZ-1 repeller, a device that warns animals of passing trains. The creative output of Professor Simona Kosak includes a total of 140 original scientific studies, pop science articles, unpublished scientific documentation, and four books. Kosak would pass on March 15, 2007. The opening of Simona Kosak Street oh. in Yayowitsa happened on March 18, 2017, and Zinjin now stands as a monument in Yayowitsa. Lek continued his and Simona's work up until his death. He went on to write and publish a handful of books, but his last book was Meeting with Simona Kojak, a biography about Simona full of never-before-seen pictures of their life together and dedicated to her work and passion. He died in December 2018. Today, Simona's niece, Joanna Kosak, keeps her aunt's memory alive. Growing up, Joanna spent every vacation she could at her aunt's house and considered her like a mother. Joanna performs talks educating people about Simona and her work. 
John herself is a painter and said that one day she'd like to write a book about Simone and Lech, but needs some more time to grieve. Aww. Um, this is Joanna in front of the house. Quote, Man is also a part of nature, and there are no more or less important parts of it, a flower, a star, a stone, and man is permeated with the same divine spark. Those who learn to sympathize with plants and animals can understand others and will be better for themselves. That is, they will not do anything against their nature. Simona Cossack. And here are pictures of her in her last years. Mm-hmm. He looks like a wood witch. I love yeah. it. Totally. <laughs> so yeah, that's Simona Cossack. Amazing. She, she's so good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) all right courtney courtney that's you (laughs) i know i'm here i promise Mm -hmm. um so we've kind of touched on this topic a little bit before i think um i'm going to talk about parthenogenesis which is a complicated complex form of reproduction um so parthenogenesis is greek and it roughly translates to virgin birth um and it's a form of asexual reproduction where embryos form without fertilization from sperm um so just some technical terms we're going to refresh everybody on go back to high school biology love it um you have oocytes which is spelled with two O's, um, which are egg cells. uh, And they're typically found in the female. Typically, they're found in the female. Um, And then you have spermatocytes, which are sperm cells, and they're found in males. Um, We have meiosis, which is a process where a single cell will divide twice to to produce four cells containing half of the original amount of genetic information as the original cell. So most of our cells are what we call diploid cells, where they have two sets of genetic information. And meiosis um, is the process in which you end up with haploid cells, where you have half of that amount of information. And this is generally how you get oocytes and spermatocytes. Um, Another important term that might come up later um is fitness so in biology when we talk about fitness we're not talking about getting gains or like running long distances it's the ability to survive to a reproductive age find a mate and or produce offspring um so basically when darwin was talking about survival of the fittest he wasn't talking about like all the chads getting the ladies he was talking about like making sure that you make babies later right so when people say like oh you know survival of the fittest bitch it doesn't matter if i help you like that's not the way that works um it's really talking about um an organism producing offspring in their lifetime and like the more offspring that an organism can produce uh, the greater its fitness is. Like we would say, four is a very fit snail because she just had her 12th clutch of eggs in my tank and we don't have a second snail. <laughs> it's been a lot, guys. 
Um, another thing that I want to touch on is there's another way of um, another process within um, like, what am I trying to say? Reproduction um, called mitosis, where you start with a diploid cell with two sets of DNA and you end with a diploid cell with two sets of DNA. Um, so like most of all of our cells are, are capable of mitosis. Um, how you like heal things because your body like replicates itself and makes new cells. Um, but in humans, at least the only, and I might be wrong, but I learned the only um, cells that are capable of just undergoing meiosis are um, your um, reproductive organs. So your ovaries will making egg cells or your testicles making sperm cells. Um, and I promise this is important. Um, so <laughs> when you have what we call like what we think of as like normal sexual reproduction, um, you have an oocyte and a spermatocyte and they join together, exchange genetic DNA and end up making a zygote, which is tiny, like proto baby. Um, the fetus is so a you fetus. Have the kind of, yeah, it's like pre-fetus. Like it's not really a thing yet but it's like proto fetus it's it's a step in in the process um so like well just a refresher we have those two haploid cells and become a diploid cell so they start with n number of of genetic material and they end up creating 2n amount of genetic material um in parthenogenesis you don't have a spermatocyte in the equation so in parthenogenesis, there's a couple different ways of doing it. Um, I'm going to start off by talking about haploid parthenogenesis. So you go through meiosis, the normal process. You have a new site with n number of cells. And then that oocyte does something different. And it starts to like replicate itself. And you end up with a haploid zygote. So you end up with a a proto-fetus with half in the number of genetic material as normal, um, which then develops into a haploid individual. So when you have an animal or an organism that goes through haploid parthenogenesis, it ends up with half of the amount of genetic material that you would expect, but still functions. Is it essentially like a clone then? Yeah, kind of. Um, so like. It's it's a clone if the original parent has a haploid amount of uh, genetic material, but like if your mom, like the original, probably didn't have a haploid because like most things reproduce through sexual reproduction, so most things are diploid. But yeah, basically, it's just like cloning itself, and we'll get into like genetic. Bits later, I'm just going to go over the process first. There is also diploid parthenogenesis. And there's two different types there. There's automixis, where the oocyte will fuse with another oocyte. And so you end up with a diploid zygote, which would be what we would expect. And then it evolves into a diploid individual. Um, 
Or sometimes, like, the chromosomes will just replicate within the oocyte, and so you still end up with another diploid individual, which is abnormal. Like, that's not how, like, we are taught that reproduction works, right? Um, there's also apomixis, which means without mixing, um, where you just have a female egg cell with two sets of genetic material that replicates itself into becoming, you know, goes through... Um, the process ends up with a diploid zygote, and then you end up with another diploid individual. Um, so generally, all of these animals that use parthenogenesis as a means of reproduction are female. Like, you have to be, right? Like, you have to be a female to make eggs. That's, that's scientifically... We're not going to get into, like, gender constructs because that's a human thing. And also, sex and gender are very complicated. We're, we're not getting into that today. That's its own whole-ass um, episode. And I'm going to get into sexual determination a little bit with these because these are generally called, like, virgin births and, like, seen as, like, a feminist. <laughs> Something people are like, oh, look, see, we don't need men. Technically, we we. Like, we don't really with science and stuff. Like, we could probably make it work without them at this point. Um, and sexual reproduction with a male counterpart is wasteful. Like, think about it. You have a whole gender that doesn't, within the scientific context, and I like men. And I think men are wonderful. Nathan, you're wonderful. Um, hey. <laughs> But when you think about it from, like, a survival standpoint and a scientific standpoint, you have a whole gender that cannot reproduce, generally does not contribute to the, like, furthering of the species or, like, reproduction beyond donating some cells. And are, like, a lot of, like, they're taking up resources and land and, like, that's a lot of waste if you think about it. Whereas if you have a species that only has members that can reproduce, like in the case of these parthenogenic species, like that, that makes more sense from a resource conservation standpoint, right? Yeah, it's, and in the sense of like, if for whatever there is a a mutation or something on the male side, like then they're extra useless. <laughs> like if they can't, you heard provide... it here, folks. Men are extra useless, <laughs> right? Well, like if they can't, if they can't provide the genetic material that they need for reproduction, right? Right. Like, um, I, I think it was. I think I was reading somewhere. It might have been something that you linked us uh, that like um, the weakest link when it comes to sexual reproduction is the male side because if there are issues on that side where genetic DNA cannot be turned over, then like why the fuck are they there? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, that also kind of plays into like how how haploid cells work, and we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second, because we're also going to get a little bit into, like, sex determination in a very broad stroke, because it is very big and complicated. We're going to kind of go over everything. Um, 
but yeah, like the only the upside. We'll, we'll give this side because I was thinking about this and it got kind of lost. Um, so the upside to having a counterpart like that, though, that can contribute genetic material to your offspring, is that you have a wider array of genetic material in your offspring right so like you have a greater chance of diversification and mutations and mutations can be beneficial that's how we get that's like how we get things like giraffes right like giraffes from what i understand are like derived from um short-necked cloven hoof animals but as time went on and it became beneficial for them to have a longer neck, the, the animals that had longer necks and were taller that could reach those like leaves high up gave birth to children with longer necks. Like that's how, that's how evolution works, right? So if you are only cloning yourself all the time, you don't really have that, uh, that chance or as much of a chance of evolving those different yeah it's like the bananas right bananas that um was all genetically identical then they got completely destroyed because of a disease because none of them have anything to defend against it right right so like and, and we're talking about without human intervention they do they have done experiments um with with these parthenogenic creatures where they like crossbreed them and stuff and create new new parthenogenic species that are like very cool. Um I'll link that article. It's called When Pseudosex is Better Than the Real Thing. Which is a fantastic title. Um and uh it's it's pretty great. And it goes over a lot of what we we're talking about here. Um so when we're talking about male versus female and sex determination in a scientific sense, um, when we're in school, we learn about humans, and humans use X, Y sex determination. Um, however, um, not, not all animals use that. Most mammals do. Most mammals use X, X, and X, Y. And for a refresher, or if you didn't know, um, females in humans typically have two X chromosomes when we're talking about um, sex assigned at birth. Um, there are mutations that you can have. You can be what's called like super female where you have multiple X chromosomes um, or you have multiple X chromosome and a Y chromosome. Um, but we're not getting into that today because it's complicated. <laughs> and like I said, it's its own, own whole thing. Um, so, um, when we're talking about XX and XY chromosomes, um, the male haploid cell, so when the sperm are divided or created, they have either an X chromosome or a Y chromosome, where if we're talking about eggs, human eggs only have X chromosomes, right? Because you're XX. So, when the two come together... Only the male or only the spermatocyte will determine what the sex of the offspring is. So, like, in history for humans, with all of these men 
being mad at their wives when they kept having girls all the time. It was really the man's problem, um, which is also kind of like, like, granted, they don't know that, but like, it's also like a great, another great argument for why we should trace things matriliterally and not patriliterally, because you always know who the mother is and the mother um, can't really determine things like if you want to have a boy or a girl. Um, but we do things through the man. It doesn't really make sense. Anyway. Uh, fruit flies also use the XY chromosomes, um, but they have the sexual differentiation that occurs after fertilization. I'm not exactly sure how that works. Please uh, like refer to a bug scientist for that because I, I couldn't really understand. Um, and I would also like to say that this is not the only way that Human humans and other organisms can like express sexual determination um, and fuck turfs. Gender is a construct. Uh, it's a spectrum and intersex bodies are valid and beautiful. And that's all I want to say on that right now. Uh, there are also um, X, X and XO chromosome, sex chromosomes where um, in like it's a variant of the XY system where females have two X chromosomes, but men or males have uh, only one sex chromosome. And like the second one just has no sex determinator in the genetic material whatsoever. Um, and sex is determined by the amount of genes that are expressed. Um, and it's mostly observed in insects, although there are some mammals like rodents that have a similar system where both sexes lack a second sex chromosome, and it's really complicated and wild and not widely understood. So please refer to a like insect professional or a mammal prof a rodent rodentologist for more information. Um, there's also a system where they use Z and W or Z and W sex determination, uh, where Females have a ZW chromosome and males have two Zs. Um, this is how chickens determine gender, sex. Um, and not all of them depend on that W chromosome to decide whether or not, you know, like to figure out how things work. Like some butterflies express their sex chromosomes as ZW, but the females are Z solo or two Zs with a W. It's complicated and shit is wild and nature is chaos. <laughs> if you're not confused by now, you're not paying attention. Also, that should make you confused because I'm confused sometimes. <laughs> I just love like classic like right belief that sex is binary and that's it. It's not. And like, oh, we learned, not like, true. Um, it's definitely something I learned in high school biology that like there are different ways of sexual expression within even like the very quote unquote simple X, 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 Y system that humans use. Like I was talking about super males or super females. There's like all these different kinds of like ways that things can go wrong. Like it's a miracle that anyone is born, honestly. Like. <laughs> It's it's so random. It is so random, and none of it makes sense. And sometimes it just kind of works. It's magic. That's like like this is why I get I can't 
I couldn't really get into chemistry at a certain point because like thinking about how things just like if you think about like a molecule and how like it has electrons and neutrons and protons and how they all just kind of hang out together like if you think about it too long and how nothing is actually like there's space between them it starts to make me freak out a little bit and i like spiral so we're not going to think about it (laughs) (laughs) oh okay so now that we have that baseline down that very complicated baseline down let's just do a little refresher um parthenogenesis you have an egg or a haploid cell and then it develops into either a haploid zygote or a diploid zygote using different methods cool 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 mm-hmm. um any questions before i go on none that i would know the answer that i would understand okay cool 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 <laughs> If you have any, like, pipe up, because, like, this is, I know this is weird and complicated. We're going to get into, like, stuff that's a little bit more, like, less uh, ethereal and, like, made up. Because, like, this is all made up, right? Like, we, we've assigned these names and letters and things to these tiny things that don't exist, but do exist. Um, now we're going to talk a little bit more about, like, the two different kinds of parthenogenesis that I want to talk about, and then um, some real-world stuff. Um, so the first one I'm going to talk about is called, and I don't speak Greek, Erhenotuki. We need to stick with Latin, guys. <laughs> um, this is Greek for birth of a male person. Um, this this kind of parthenogenesis is typically found in insects, especially in bees. And this is where a haploid male is produced from an unfertilized egg. So bees use this method of reproduction to create drone bees, male bees, that can then mate with a queen to create diploid workers and future queens. That's how, so when I was little, I always used to wonder, like, how, like, if the queen was the most important, and she, like, goes off and starts her own hive by herself, how, how did they make more worker bees? Because don't, like, we know that drone ma- drones exist, um, but, like, how did, where did the drones come from, right? Well, she lays them herself, sometimes. Sometimes they probably come from another hive, but, like, she lays them herself and then will uh, start her own hive that way. And how wild is that? Imagine this in, like, person terms and, like, this woman's just like, yeah, fuck, I'm gonna go start my own kingdom and then goes away and just, like, births. Goes away. (laughs) has, Has a male child. And then makes more children with this male child to populate the whole kingdom. So it work. <laughs> right? She will also lay haploid or unfertilized eggs that will develop and can develop into haploid females for different workers, but then we'll also have like diploid workers. Wild. Um yeah. My brain is starting to melt. Um, <laughs> then there's also Teletoki, which is Greek for female birth, 
where female organisms are produced from unfertilized eggs. And this is the one that we typically think of when we think of parthenogenesis. Because I think, like, the poster child for this are whiptail lizards. I think it's one of, like, the first times that we really started to to pay attention to this happening. Um, or at least when people started to, like, sensationalize it in the news. Because humans are weird and we don't care about things like insects as much. Like, there are obviously exceptions to that rule. But, like, as a general, like, the general populace does not give a fuck about something unless it's cute or large. Or them. Generally them. But, um, like... You, like writing about bees doing this isn't as interesting as writing about lizards that give virgin birth. <laughs> um, so this is very like theliotoki teletoki is very common in um, invertebrates, but it's also found in some vertebrates like those whiptail lizards that we were talking about. Um, and so that's when the automixis occurs a lot of the time so that you end up with some diploid cells or diploid zygotes and that's the one where um it's it's mixing genetic material between uh, it either replicates itself or it mixes with another egg cell um and so you get some kind of recombination of dna which is important like we were talking about for fitness and survival in general um but it doesn't occur as often as in sexual reproduction. Um, and that kind of, but it also kind of helps with inbreeding depression, where you have a population that isn't as fit as it could be because of inbreeding. Um, inbreeding is definitely a problem that we think of a lot when we think of like small populations of animals or people. Um, and and the issues that kind of rise from that because you can end up with mutations that will actually make you less fit or less able to reproduce. Like, it could mean that, you know, you aren't able to process something properly without, uh, like, you know, like diabetes, let's say, for example. And I'm not saying that people with diabetes shouldn't be reproducing. I'm talking about, um, like, in the wild without the advances that we have, if you had something like diabetes or hemophilia, like you would be less likely to be able to make it to adulthood and reproduce because of those diseases that you have. And so, and so like those sorts of things and not that those are caused by inbreeding. Um, but yeah, things like that mutations that happen. Yeah, like getting um, kind of incur uh, increases odds of genetic defects or yeah, yeah, that way. Um, yeah. Um. So the wild thing about parthenogenesis is that it has been found in humans, but it's not like it's not like you can look at people or see them and be like, "Aha, you are a virgin baby." Um, there was a, a small child who had, like, some kind of illness or something. I don't exactly remember what, and I, I have to find my source again. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Is it this one? Yeah. So, um, this is a paper that I found uh, from 2017, and it's called On Human Parthenogenesis. Um, so there was a child who was born in um 
1995, who was called FD. Um, and he was found to have two cell lineages in his body. So technically he was a chimera. Um, so hmm. he had one cell lineage that appeared to come from normal fertilization where you have a haploid sperm and a haploid oocyte and they make more little haploid diploid cells. Um, but they also had a second set of genetic lineage that was from a spontaneously activated oocyte, which developed duplicated its genetic material. So it, it like replicated itself and made diploid cells. Um, yeah. So, um, FD, the child, uh, did have a lot of issues. Oh, I'm sorry, tissues. Never mind. I read tissues, issues, <laughs> tissues, because they were going in for other stuff. Um, yeah, so he was considered a parthenogenic chimera and had some, like, had some clinical abnormalities, um, which is why his parents went in and were like, what's up with our baby? Um, but yeah, so, and and then it just so happened in this child that um, the parthenogenic cell lineage, like, occurred in his blood. And so that's how they found it so easily. Like, they didn't have to do, like, a ton of testing or anything because they took his blood and were like, what the fuck's up with your blood, kid? Um, yeah. So, um, not common. And not, like, not, like, a pure, you know, as, I don't know if that's even a term, but not, like, a pure part that agenda. Like, it wasn't, like, the story of Jesus where, like, this kid, like, spontaneously erupted from nothing it just happened that some some of his gender and like how that happens is not quite understood um and i'll link that article in the show notes as well it's in my sources um but yeah like it can't it can happen and how wild is that i actually knew a guy who was my era oh really yeah that's cool and yeah. not all chimeras not all chimeras have parthenogenesis but like very cool did it express different like in a certain way? Like, did he have like? Um, I I believe it was expressed differently with the um, hormones, where he got a lot oh. of both hormones. So he didn't express as traditionally masculine as oh, okay as a male with a lot of testosterone would. So yeah like other than that there wasn't a huge difference it was just yeah the hormones and i think he had to take some supplementary hormones that just kind of balance his life out oh that's so interesting <laughs> um now i'm like i just want to read about it but i'm sure there's nothing published about him so probably not no i think i think i remember if I remember correctly like they wanted to like these studies and stuff on it like his family's like nah <laughs> no yeah I, I don't really blame like like on the one hand like it's super interesting but also like be a, like it's sometimes when medical anomalies happen in people they're not treated like people they're treated like science experiments not cool um yeah so to wrap this up why why does this happen in the animal kingdom like we were talking before like it kind of makes sense to clone yourself in some situations instead of wasting resources on um, a male population who doesn't reproduce. And it's just more, it just makes more sense, like, resource-wise and fitness-wise to do so. Um, sometimes there are no male 
be like male of the species around. Um, and so it kind of happens spontaneously. Now there is something that was talked about in the in the when pseudosex is better article, where even though um, even though all of these lizards that they were looking at were were considered female um, and produced oocytes, um, they would have fluctuations in their um, hormones. So they would have like an uptick in like a, a, a testosterone hormone or something and would exhibit masculine, traditionally masculine behavior that's observed within the species and would do things like simulating sex with other female whiptail lizards. Like they would do all the same things that a, a male whiptail lizard would do, like try to mount them and like fight them in a particular way. And then that would stimulate ovulation. Uh, oh, and, and the other reason why, why we would do parthenogenesis, sometimes um, sexual reproduction can be risky for the female a lot of the time. Because like in general, like a lot of animals will... Um, bite the female during sex or like in other ways injure her sometimes it like like sexual reproduction isn't what we would consider to be consensual like there's a lot of fighting that it goes on and it can actually injure and or kill the female um or like sometimes I like in the, i think we talk, huh so that's kind of right? <laughs> or like or like sometimes um in marine animals like a female can be drowned during sex, which is also counterproductive. Um, but also, like, I don't know, just sometimes when you have things where you're, when you're, um, when you're having sexual reproduction, um, it can cause mutations that are not beneficial, or you can have um, DNA breaking breakage that happens, um, and and that's not great, and that can happen during stressful conditions. So, like sometimes this kind of quote unquote cloning is is better. So, yeah, and that's parthenogenesis. Hopefully, your brain isn't soup now, but mine is. <laughs> so, like with uh, species that are capable of genus. Says, will they still do it when there if there still are males available? Um, well, like we talked about bees. Bees yeah. do. But I think it depends on the animal. Like some of the lizard lizard species that do this, and I'm talking about them because again, they're like the poster child for parthenogenesis. There there are no males. Interesting. So, um, yeah. It kind of depends. Um but yeah, like some animals, some animals do it because it's um, like convenient at the time, or like there aren't males around. But some animals, like that's the only way that they reproduce. So, wild nature is wild, science is wild. Nature is wild. Nothing makes sense. Everything's made up. Don't press <laughs> on your table too hard. Your hand will go through. It's good times. <laughs> Sounds good. And that's it for this week. Next time, Nathan's going to talk us through the Clinton body count. This conspiracy theory that alleges that the Clintons have done away with many political rivals and perhaps more. 
As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story you want us to cover, want to tell us that we're wrong, or you just want to say hi, you can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get in on the funds, come join us on our Discord server. The link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you.